Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us today. Policing in America is a polarizing topic. High-profile killings of black men by police officers over the last few years have eroded trust of policing as an institution, especially in the minds of many black Americans. According to a 2022 Pew Research Center survey, most black Americans think policing needs major changes to treat black people fairly. But did you know that a group of police officers and community members in Minneapolis has been working mostly behind the scenes for the past seven years to rebuild trust. And that includes learning about and acknowledging the origins of policing in slavery. This hour, I'm talking with a longtime police officer in Minneapolis and a community organizer involved in those conversations. It's called the Police and Black Men Project. Our discussion is part of our new Talking Sense series here at NPR News, which aims to help us better understand why political conversations are so polarized in the first place and give us some tools for managing those conversations. Talking Sense includes an app, too, available online, which has an entire section about policing. You can check it out right now at mprnews.org slash talking sense. And that is S-E-N-S-E, mprnews.org slash talking sense. And as we have this discussion, I want to hear from you, too. Is policing something you and your friends or family members also struggle to talk about? How have you begun to have those conversations with people who might think differently than you do? The phone lines are open and you can call us at 651 651- Two two seven six thousand. Again, the number is six five one two two seven six thousand, or call us at eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. Let's bring in our guest. Charlie Adams is here. Charlie is an inspector for the Minneapolis Police Department's Fourth Precinct. He's been with MPD since nineteen eighty seven and is a member of the Police and Black Men Project. Good morning to you, Inspector Adams. Good morning. Nice to see you. Guy Bowling is here. Guy is a nationally recognized fatherhood leader and speaker, the former director of the Father Project, which is a federally funded responsible fatherhood program, and he's a 2020 Bush Fellow. He's also a member of the Police and Black Men Project. Hello, Guy. Nice to meet you. Good morning. Nice to meet you. So, Guy, uh, take us back. You have been involved in this project uh, since day one, as I said, about seven years ago. Remind us what was going on in Minneapolis, what was going on across the nation at that time when this idea was started. Set the scene for us. Yeah, um, it seems like so long ago, but uh, it actually wasn't. This was back in um, 2016, the summer of 2016. And um, I had uh, been doing work with fathers uh, in the community and had been doing work in the field of family support for many years, uh, working with low-income fathers, helping them move move barriers um, that gets in the way of their kids. Um, But at the time, I had recently begun to feel a certain way because there was just uh, numerous uh, shootings of unarmed black men across the country Mm -hmm. that goes, you know, back to uh, before the project even started, Trayvon Martin and so many others that we have come to know. And I think what was going on at the time, uh, Bill Doherty, who is also the co-founder of the Police and Black Men Project, him and I had worked on different um, citizen health care initiatives, including with fathers and developing as leaders. He just happened to stop by my office one day just to say hello. He was in the neighborhood. And that particular day uh, we were talking and I was really distraught uh, based on what had recently happened in the summer of 2016 when uh, Philando Castillo was shot. And so he was asking me how things were going and I was telling him 
that, you know, I was outraged and I was fatigued. I just couldn't take one more. And that was in uh, Falcon Heights, Philando Castile, uh, a traffic stop that ended uh, with his death. He was shot uh, to death by an officer. Yeah. And so at that point, because some of the other ones, and even though, uh, you know, I don't have a police background and understand all those details. I do now as a result of working on a project. But um, I could make some sense of some of the other things that happened in terms of not justifiably why things had happened in terms of some of those other men were killed. But I couldn't understand why Philando, because it seemed like he did everything right. It seemed like he listened. seemed like he followed orders. It seemed like he, you know, was cooperating and he lost his life. And so that just kind of shook me up. And so I was. And there think- was some video. It was some video. As a matter of fact, his right. girlfriend it was filmed it live. Facebook, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact. And so I was just like devastated, you know, for a couple of reasons. Number one for many uh, of the things that had happened before Philando, what happened to Philando, but also in the fact that I'm a father and I have a son and I work with men and I work with black men. And so that hit me hard. And I was like, I just couldn't figure out what to do. And uh, Bill and I were talking and Bill was, I know he listened to me, you know, supportively, you know, the best that he possibly could. And I was saying to him, we have to do something about this because I know there'll be more just based on the, you know, that, just it's like a powder keg. It's going to happen again. And so what can we do to prevent that? What can I do to prevent my son or the men that I work with or the men in the community? And so I said, can you apply uh, the model um, that we've done with the work, previous work for our citizen health care and, and, and working together to develop relationships with the Minneapolis Police Department and see how we can get to know them so they can know us and see if we can do what we did before. And so he uh, he went off and he began to start making some contacts and some connections with uh, MPD and uh, pitched it to the chief at the time, Chief mm-hmm. Hartle. And then she had a community liaison person, Sherman Patterson. Uh, and then we said, hey, let's bring together, you know, some community men, a black man. Let's bring together some police officers, both black and white. And let's talk about um, how we can begin to develop something organically that we can get to know one another and uh, hopefully improve relationships. And that's how it started. I was a local television reporting uh, reporter at that time. And I was at the scene of uh, where Philando Castile died that night. And I remember uh, talking to people as they arrived and this word was spreading because the video again was shared on Facebook. Mm -hmm. A lot of raw emotions, very disturbing, uh, very, uh, you know, just a sense of despair. Um, And just, you know, in the days and weeks to come, hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Inspector Adams, you're a longtime police officer who's now in a leadership position. You're an inspector. What were your initial uh, impressions of the idea of sitting with some community members uh, alongside fellow officers and, and, and talking about what we were feeling and, and seeing. Well, we've done that for years <clears throat> before even the group, you know, with the late Ron Edwards and Spike Moss and mm-hmm. other community members that I've known basically all my life. I grew up in North Minneapolis. So I had no issues sitting down with community and talking. This project here was presented to me by former assistant chief, Chris Arneson. She said that they wanted to put a black officer on, you know, along with the white officers on this this project, and I agreed to do it, you know. So once I met everybody, you know, I knew, I think I only know, the only person I knew at the time was a guy because we actually grew up together. Mm, my, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, him and my brother Tony oh, okay. are really good friends, so. So that's uh, guy was probably the only one I knew at the time when we joined that project. And so, you know, tell me about the day uh, the group members met for the first time. What was the mood like in, in that room? Do you remember some of the very first meetings, uh, guy? How would you describe? Oh, that's it? for me. Oh, <laughs> wow, um, tension, lots okay. of tension, 
there was tension. Um, as 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 uh, Inspector was saying, um, I knew him, of course, so I never had that 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 issue with him because I knew him and uh, I good friends with his brother. Um, but uh, for the other officers that I didn't know, I think it was just a sense of uh, we felt intimidation because they were in uniform. They had what walkie talkies. They had their guns, and you know we were didn't have relationships with them in that kind of a way. So you felt the presence and not because they did anything in particular. But there are assumptions in the room with you. 100%. 100%. And so we hear radios going off and we hear that kind of thing. And we're like, okay, is this kind of, is this a right idea? Is this what we want to do? But again, it triggers our own experiences in terms of when we've interacted with police. Not that there was anything going to happen, but I think there was some initial attention at first. Mm. Do you remember some of the initial meetings, um, Inspector Adams? Yeah. You know, a lot of the white officers were kind of quiet. They didn't really want to say the wrong thing to you know trigger somebody so you know after a couple meetings i'm like this is this i'm gonna have to start start a fight in here so (laughs) you're gonna have to get it started well i would imagine any all the officers probably were thinking like we're gonna get attacked right oh yeah most definitely yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so you know i had to i had to take the loudest person was justin terrell and me and justin fought for weeks and justin terrell who's currently uh the executive director of the minnesota justice research center who was he at that time he was some working. Music. He was working, uh, doing some activist work and some other work in that space. Okay. Some yeah. organizing, yeah, yeah, organizing. Yeah. And then yeah. he told us that he was the organizer of the uh, mm-hmm. occupation of the four precinct. Yeah, <laughs> and that didn't go over well. But you know, <laughs> reminding people, reminding folks, the occupation of the fourth precinct. What happened after? Uh, you know, you know, over the years, you know that 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 people may not recall. Well, we had an uh, officer, uh, officer involved, and, uh, you know, the young man was uh, killed, like, blocks away from the uh, the precinct. Uh, it was three weeks. Yeah. The precinct was, the doors were blocked. and, and Oh, yeah. They took over the whole Plymouth Avenue, and uh, hundreds of people out there went on night after night. Uh, we had, you know, we didn't fortify it or anything like that. Chief Hartol tried to talk to the crowd to get them uh, to, to, to leave. Betsy Hodges was the mayor at the time. She was out there trying to, you know, negotiate with folks, and it just didn't it didn't happen, you know. And that was after the death of Jamar Clark. Yes, it was. Right, uh, which I also covered, and I covered the 4th Precinct occupation, probably one of the most uh, traumatic things I dealt with as a reporter mm-hmm. when um, that ended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a conflict between police and the people, community members that were there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I think that was one of the things that, because Jamar happened after Philando, um, I believe, and we experienced a few. I think. Well, I think Jamar Clark. I would have was to he... check. Was that 2015? And oh yeah, you know what? I, I, think, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you're right. But back to back, right. I mean, yeah. it was very right. close. You're right. And there's been a few others since we've been together. We can talk about that later as well. But and how we handled it uh, based on you know um, us working together to basically try and heal uh, and, and work with the community to heal about some of the incidents that happened after that. But absolutely, um, Jamar came before Philando. But it just ended up. As you were asking your original question, it was just a lot of, it was a tense moment. It so was here, a tense moment. So I asked you to set the scene. We've set the scene. A lot of raw emotions, a lot of anger, a lot of, of you know, the potential for, for, for violence all there. So you're in this meeting. Uh, people are not really talking, Inspector Adams. What did you do to, to, to jumpstart the conversation? I just, I guess the back and forth with me and Justin, you know, and then, you know, Dr. Yeager jumped in and then we were going at it and. Then it just it's just I think it made everybody feel comfortable that I could say what I needed to say, and I'm not really getting beat up bad by the group, 
And then a couple, you know, the officers started feeling comfortable and started jumping in and having conversations and actually explaining how they were raised. See, a lot of times we just think, you know, they come from a privileged household, right? One of our officers grew up and he was poor. And also now he starts identifying with us as black men growing up poor. And all of a sudden now we're, you know, the other black men are starting to say, well, man, he's no different than what I am, you know, what I have experienced right in life. So I think that that just that opened up the whole conversation with all of us. I think, you know, when I've had talk shows where I've talked about uh, public safety and policing, what I always think about is that people bring to the conversation their own lived experience. So if your lived experience is if everything has been, you know, wonderful and, um, you know, then that's it is hard to understand why anyone would be fearful of a police officer. If your lived experience has been every member of your family, every generation of your family explains or shares horror stories, then that's your perception. So mm-hmm. then how do you then get together and talk about it when you're coming from such different places? I think for me, I was optimistic that we could make it work in terms of getting to know one another by spending time with each other because we had uh, did a similar project with uh, – Dr. Doherty, uh, that was a citizen father uh, project where got an opportunity for men to get to know each other over a significant period of time and talk and learn about likes and dislikes and values and things of that nature and things, all the things that we had in common and then developed a project as a result of it. So I was optimistic that the process could work. Um, but at the same time, I also felt like if we were able to humanize each other, you know, mm-hmm. so if you see me with a hood on. Um, But if you don't know me, I might be considered this based on the stereotypes that we have in our community. But if you see me and you know me as guy, well, that's guy with a hood on, right? You know, so it's a little different in terms of seeing me in the community. Or even if we see an officer without his uniform on, oh, that's are an officer that we've got a chance to meet without his uniform on. Yeah. So how can oh, we human on each other? Jeffrey, he's got, you know, two kids over there in elementary right. school and one in, in the that's middle right. school. That's right. Uh, and so... So then what do we see, uh, Inspector Adams, eventually in your conversations, your meeting um, regularly, the, do the discussions evolve? Do they become, you know, do people share more or, or willing to, to, you know, step into stuff that they know is going to, that will be met with disagreement? More yeah. comfortable with that? They shared. They started to share. You know, and we all start sharing our personal, some of our personal Things with like I had a story, the Cadillac story, when my dad he's got a vintage Cadillac, and he let my brother drive it, take it to the prom. We lived in public housing at the time. The car was parked out in front of our house. Police saw it. Minneapolis saw it there. They're like, got a tow truck to tow it away because we shouldn't have it. Black folks who are poor shouldn't have a Cadillac and living in the front. This is your prom night. It was my brother's. Your brother's brother's prom night. My older brother's prom night. So it was a confrontation between us and the Minneapolis police, and I'm, we, were, we were getting ready to go with them, and they are towing my dad's car away, and my mom came out, oh. yelled at me and my brother to knock it off, and then they towed the car away, and she's basically told me, if you want to change, you need to be a police officer. That's what you want to do. But you're not going to be out here fighting with the police. And that's what got me motivated to go in law enforcement, that whole scene right there. Uh, so uh, I explained that story to a lot of the people in the group and a lot of the white officers didn't under, didn't know that occurred and we have one we couldn't imagine that like now what happened like they mm. probably it was like mm. beyond their imagination right right, right. That would not have happened to them no it wouldn't have had, happened to them and and then you know we i shared that story we had one officer cause we were sharing our stories of deli- issues we had with policing and issues that we're having being black and uh one of one, one of the officers he just really couldn't handle it mm-hmm. and it wasn't because 
he was feeling so bad for us that we experienced that. And basically, we had to let him leave the project. I had to talk to Chief Harto and let him leave the department because emotionally, he couldn't handle it because he couldn't imagine all this bad stuff was happening. And he's a very compassionate guy. I know him very well. He used right. to work for me. And I just, you know, just for his mental health, we had to let him go, you know. We're talking about having uh, tough conversations with people who disagree with you. And I want to know, is policing something that you and and your friends or family members struggle to talk about? Have you have you begun to have those discussions with people who you might, you know, who might think differently than you do? Um, I want to hear from you. We're taking your phone calls, 651-227-6000, or you can call us at 800-242-2828. And I, and I want you to know that this conversation, this discussion, it's part of our new Talking Sense series here at Empire News, which aims to help us better understand why political conversations are so polarized in the first place and to give us some tools for managing those conversations. Uh, Talking Sense includes an app, uh, too. It's available uh, today, uh, it has, and, and we have online resources at nprnews.org slash talking sense, and you can find an entire section about policing. It will expand in the, uh, the days and weeks to come, uh, to include, um, um, you know, more areas. But, uh, right now, uh, we're going to be talking about policing, and I want to hear your stories. 651. 651- Two two seven six thousand or eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. Uh, Guy Inspector Adams, I'm going to bring a listener in who's uh, been holding on for us uh, in Minneapolis. Howard is on the phone. Good morning, Howard. Thank you for listening and for calling in. And what did you want to share with us as we talk about trying to talk about uh, police work? Good morning. Hi. Congratulations, Inspector Adams, on the the community recognition you received. Thank you. I've been a chaplain for four departments. Uh, in L.A., I was with the Rampart uh, Division. We had a clergy council that helped build that bridge between Rampart Division officers and the community. I have a concern that we only have one officer <clears throat> for the Police Activities League for Minneapolis, and we're short so many officers. So my hope is that the faith communities can have uh, barbecues where officers and community members can start to see each other's humanity. Mm. And so, Howard, as a chaplain, have you found that um, that you know conversations about about race and and does it weigh heavily on a lot of officers' minds? And do you feel that they talk about having problems talking about it freely? I think it, it runs the gamut. Um, I think some of the problem officers in MPD have already left. But uh, what's scary is white nationalists recruit police and military. So there's always going to be bad apples in law enforcement because of that dynamic. So you got to be uh, diligent to hold those guys accountable and get them off the force. One of the things I, I think about and I hear a lot of police chiefs talk about is the difficulty to recruit new officers. And, and Howard, any thoughts on that? I think if you get incentives for officers to live in the community, if you remember Rodney King, all those officers lived up in Simi Valley. They don't live in the communities they served. Mm-hmm. And the diversity needs to be there. You need to have those ambassadors that can represent their community as part of the community policing. And Howard, you may or may not have some familiar, familiarity with uh, the Police and Black Men Project in Minneapolis. What are, you th- what are your thoughts about like just getting officers and community community members together uh, with a willingness to really say what's on their heart and mind? Is that... 
do you find that inspirational? Do you, are you hopeful that that will help us to begin to build some trust? I'm a cheerleader, but here's my experience as a white man in North Minneapolis. Many of these young men think I'm a cop. And the way they interact with me shows how much work is still to be done. I'm not a cop. I, I'm a U.S. military vet, and I tell them I'm not a cop. The only thing, if you're pushing fentanyl, you're the enemies of the community. But other than that, I don't, I stay in my lane. But when I experience that, when they think I'm a cop, I can see how, it, you know, there, there's problems on both ends. So we got to see each other's humanity. So describe what you mean the way, if they believe you're a police officer, the way they treat you, how do they treat you? Very rude, very confrontational. And if I was an officer and I had that interaction again and again, and I give lawful commands that they don't respect, you can see how quickly things can escalate. So, yeah. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the accountability needs to be on both sides. All right. Thank you, Howard. Uh, calling from Minneapolis, who's been a chaplain uh, for uh, various police departments over the years. Uh, wh- what do you say to that, uh, Charlie, these, these interactions? And I'm assuming, I shouldn't assume, but maybe he's talking about particularly young people interacting with officers, or, or maybe not. Well, you know, in North Minneapolis, I think we have a great relationship with the community. Uh, and I get that. Hear, oh, I hear that every day. <clears throat> I, I can tell you, my precinct, we had open bids citywide last year. And our precinct was the first precinct to fill up. So I started asking a couple of people, well, why did you come over to the precinct? Because they said, we know the community supports you over here. And I think that's a lot of hard work that my staff has put in, myself put in, with my relationship with the various community groups over there. Uh, and, and you know, even my our relationship with my son's football team at Minneapolis North, you know, mm-hmm. I coach there also with him. So mm-hmm. I, we coach 60 kids a year. So I have a great relationship with, with, with my young people over there. And my officers also, they support us in our efforts to, with that football program. You know, they're at the, they show up to the games. They're at the games in uniform. And they're just there to make everybody feel comfortable, right? But they're also there watching the game, too. So <clears throat> I, I can understand what he's saying. There is some people out there just not going to, you know, they're going to be disrespectful, right? But I think that's the least that my officers worry about, you know, somebody being disrespectful to them, especially a young black person. Well, Howard described himself. He says he's a white man. So how do you describe the interactions between white police officers and community members in in the areas, neighborhoods that you work in frequently? I can tell you a story. My daughter, she's African-American. She's a police officer. She works for a precinct. She was over working in the third precinct when she was training. And then she worked the fifth precinct, which all saw both of them are South Minneapolis. She called me up. She says, Dad, I, I got to come back Northside. I can't work work over here anymore because I'm tired of White girls who are running around with Black Lives Matter T-shirts giving me the finger, like I like I didn't experience what they experienced, that the world experienced, and you know I heard that from a lot of officers. They just got tired of the over white folks overdoing it, right? And 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 that's why they came over to Northside because they know Northside folks want service, right? As long as you're getting protection. the service. Yep, protection, right. service. Order, safety. And safety and respect. Right. So, I mean, I know, you know, eyes raised when I said I think we have a great relationship with the community. But that's true. That's true. I have a great relationship with two council members, Ellison and Vito. We have a great relationship. They can call me and we, my officers go if they need assistance in the community over there. We, we do that. We have that working relationship now. 
And guy, what what are you seeing? Or what do you hear from community yeah. members? Yeah, um, you know, I think uh, let me let me just go back for a second in terms of my reasoning on how I felt like this project could work based on getting to know each other and develop a relationship with each other, especially from the work that I do advocating on behalf of fathers. And there's a lot of stereotypes about fathers and assumptions about fathers that they don't want to do this, they don't want to do that. They got all these other things Black going fathers. On. Black fathers. Yes. Fathers in general, but specifically black fathers, right? Um, and there's data out there that shows we're the most involved out of any group uh, in terms of being their day-to-day basis. But the other part is that um, for me, I have, was I was optimistic about it because just based on my own personal experience coming to Minnesota um, from Chicago as a youth with a father not being in my life and connecting with a local organization that's still in existence called the Boys and Girls Club. And that's mm-hmm. why I learned um, a lot of things in terms of getting involved in teamwork and positive things and just a number of different things that helped me out and put me on the path to success. It wasn't easy, but I would have to say one of the things that really had an impact on me is that um, I was a kid and, you know, it's not easy to fit in when you're from a different state, particularly where I was coming from, Chicago. There was a lot of stereotypes and a lot of kids are just being kids. And so I found myself always getting into altercations. And so I was like, well, who is this kid with this temper issue? I was like, well, you guys don't know the real as far as the, the taunting that I'm receiving. And I end up being introduced to a man who was a volunteer there that I didn't know what his professional background was. And he was a police officer. And he was a volunteer there. And he said, you know what? You need to come and try out for the boxing team because I'm seeing you getting in squirmishes and seems like you may got some things that you need to deal with. Come and unleash some of that anger Mm -hmm. and check out this boxing team. And I did. And I ended up boxing for the team for about 10 years. And it was all volunteer police officers from the Minneapolis Police Department that was volunteering and helped this kid deal with this anger, deal with these um, issues that he was dealing that, that I was dealing with. But at the same time, that was my initial introduction to the police. And that was a positive experience. And so when I hear the caller was saying, yeah, there's a particular um, stereotype and there's a perception from mm-hmm. folks who the media says one thing stereotypically about both black men and police mm-hmm. that pits us against each other. So mm-hmm. when you don't know, you don't know what you don't know and not through um, you know, when you have experiences with folks that changes that narrative, do you begin to see it differently? And I would have to say that uh, Charlie and I had an opportunity along with Dr. Corey Yeager and Jamil um, Jackson over at Henry High School. We got a chance to go in and share our project with the students there who mostly young men, 14, 15 years old, predominantly African-American males and talk to them about what they want in their community and what they've seen in their community and what they hope for their community. And you would be surprised the feedback we got from them that said we may feel this particular way but we have hope that it could change if we can contribute to it we would want to how can we make that happen because we want to be able to see it happen and we want to make it change and what can we do so we don't have the perception so we're treated fairly and respectfully uh you heard howard uh say that you know as, as a white man he's a chaplain working with police departments he's like you know the interactions you know when people think he is an officer that that he he gets treated differently like it seems like he's targeted do you see that have you heard that yeah i think for a lot of folks even some of the folks that's on the black men and police project they had particular um stereotypes too they had particular experiences that they had and so they wasn't certain about if it would work but because i had worked with them they trusted me and so it was a matter of trust and so going into the process and trusting the process i think initially they came in with a lack of trust and we found that out through the conversation that we had as charlie was mentioning we said why is there a distrust of police and then we had to peel it all the way back with some of the questions we started asking each other but what was your first interaction Mm -hmm. with the policeman Mm 
what was your very first interaction for the white police officers with a black man? And we even asked the black men that were a part of it that were um, on the police force or on the community member side, what was your first interaction with a black man? And we began to have those real conversations. So some of the police officers that were white, it was like, we didn't have that until we joined the force, mm-hmm. right? And some of us didn't have interactions with police until we were profiled or harassed as we got older or through a traffic stop. So sometimes it's based on um, those experiences. The origins. Yeah. All right, let's bring in some more of our listeners as we talk about having tough conversations with people who disagree uh, with us. Is policing something you and your friends or family also struggle to talk about? Have you uh, begun to have those discussions with people who you think might think differently than you do? Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Let's take uh, another phone call before we take a news break. Uh, In Minneapolis, Kirk is on the line. Good morning, Kirk. Thank you for listening. And what do you want to share with us? Good morning. Thanks for the call or taking my call. Mm -hmm. I think there's two types of of people, um, and I mean white people, that that I'm black and I have difficulty communicating with them about the police is is that, you know, uh, one group is might be overtly racist and uh, the other group is, you know, is doesn't see the racism. They 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 they're racist, but they but they think that their their biases are justified. They don't. They think it's just fact. Um, you know things like the you know black people being violent, uneducated. Um, there's there's just certain biases that they I guess that are implicit, and and they don't. So they they think that some of the actions of the police are justified because, again, they 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 have a perception of black people that is. So inherently racist based on their lived experience mm-hmm. right maybe that's what they right, what they bring right. to the conversation and and so do you see these conversations what we're seeing with this 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 project uh of, of sitting people down and having a chance to have conversations together is, is part of this just an opportunity for people of different races to sit together and just be next to each other that there's not a lot of that or enough of that going on kirk well i i think that the in america we're we're the most racist country where no one will admit that they're racist, and so it's a really hard thing for a white person to admit that they that they have biases or or that they're racist. And so that until people start to feel comfortable that that you know having biases and being racist isn't the worst thing in the world, especially if you're able to you know express it and and explain why you feel that way, especially with someone uh, of color who you might be able to learn something from or find some agreement on. We do better when we know better. Uh, in Minneapolis, let's take a, this phone call. This is Rick, who is on the phone. Hi, Rick. Uh, what do you want to talk to us about? Morning, Angela. Hey. You always do a great job. Thank you, um, sir. I just had a, uh, I wanted to ask the panelists about uh, the breaking up the blue wall of silence. Um, and the blue wall of silence, uh, as most people know, is that there's a fraternity within the police that you don't talk and call out police who have uh, uh, shown poor behavior or abusive behavior. Mm-hmm. This was uh, depicted in the movie Serpico by Al Pacino back in 1970. It's been around a long time. And I worked in the behavioral health care field, and if we observed a therapist abusing a client and did not bring it to supervisor's attention, we would be fired and at risk of losing our license. 
the fourth precinct, the memory a few years ago, there was the officers who were decorating the uh, Christmas tree with uh, menthol cigarettes and liquor bottles, and nobody on the force said anything. This was brought up um, by consume um, by people who lived in the neighborhood, and and then of course the big thing is the state and federal. Um, uh, investigations that we're dealing with now uh, showing that this type of behavior has been going on for years. There you go. That's All it. Right. Rick, uh, thank you, Rick, for that uh, bringing that question and that issue to the front. Uh, a lot of conversations, a lot has been reported on uh, about uh, officers reluctant to uh, report the bad behavior of other officers. And so, Inspector Adams, have we seen some progress there? Yeah, we've seen a lot of progress. I think one example I, <clears throat> you can see uh, during the, the Chauvin trial, mm-hmm. there was officers that testified. Mm-hmm. About, the trial of Derek Chauvin. Yep. Who and was so, uh, convicted in the murder of George Floyd. And I can remember Chief Charles Ramsey. He was on CNN and he looked and he says, you know, these officers are all sitting here basically telling the truth and, you know, and testifying against Chauvin. So that was one clear sign. You show that that blue wall of silence has been knocked down. I worked in internal affairs for over a year, several years ago, and I can tell you probably 90% of our complaints were internal complaints from other officers. Mm-hmm. So I've seen a, a big change. It ain't like when I came on back in, 80, in the 80s, you know, that you know, was, the culture was you did not tell on your partner. Mm-hmm. But now this is a whole different generation, a whole different generation of people. You'll be amazed how many people come in there and want to tell me what some officer did. And maybe it's not something that they did out on the street or anything like that, you know, well, they left something in the squad car. They didn't clean up the squad car. They didn't gas up the squad car. It's just a lot of telling going on, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, uh, that's just a new era with these new people. Plus, there's things been put in place where if, you're all, if your partner uses uh, force and it's excessive, you need to step in and intervene, right? And if you don't do that, then you're in trouble too. So there's a lot of things that's been put in since we've uh, – we did some uh, policies and things like that to probably put those protections up there where you're not going to sit there and lie for your partner anymore or you're going to get in trouble. Guy, have you seen a change or, or what are you hearing about um, officers being more willing to report bad behavior when they see it among fellow officers? You know, I, I'm learning um, from the officers who are part of this project about kind of what hesitation they've had in the past and how they're feeling today. But I see more of them wanting to support exactly what um, inspector was saying and, you know, sharing that they would, you know, not necessarily that they have, but that they would. And I think part of the development of the relationships that we have with them as community members and what the community is asking for, I think they realize that they should. And so I think it starts one precinct at a time. And, you know, um, Inspector Adams, you know, even though I know him personally as well as professionally, um, he's to be commended in terms of the tone that he set and the champion that he is. And if we could duplicate him, we can't. But if we could duplicate him, we would replicate him in many precincts, uh, not only here locally, but across the country, because he sets the tone. And I think that the, the culture that he has established within the folks in the communities that he's working in, I think it only leads to that kind of collaboration and cooperation. I want to share with our listeners something that um, that that your your project did um, that I'm still my I can't believe they did this. Mm. Uh, you took a road trip. You flew someplace. You went yeah. somewhere that yeah. I went, and I'm I'm still processing this. But you all did this. The two of you recently traveled together with a larger group of of law enforcement officers, uh, both black and white, and some community members. You went to the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, 
Alabama. Um, and many of our listeners may be familiar um, with uh, lawyer, author, social justice activist Brian Stevenson and the work that he has been doing in, in bringing this museum to life. Spent years working on this. Uh, it is an extraordinary place uh, that explores the history and the legacy of slavery in America. I had the privilege of spending a day there uh, last August when I went to uh, the National Association of Black Journalists Convention in Birmingham. And my husband and I flew out a day early so that we could take that hour and a half, two hour drive to Montgomery uh, Mm -hmm. to see this museum. It was mind-blowing. It's emotionally draining. I don't think I've ever seen a museum like this. I don't think museum is even the right word for it. Uh, you, you walk in, and, what, and, and I want to you know, talk to you all about what your experience was like uh, being um, with uh, you know, a group of black and white people together. But you walk in, and one of the first things uh, is you know, the sensory experience. So you're surrounded by sounds and images, mm-hmm. and um, there are these you know, video, this room where it, it appears like you're in at the ocean, mm-hmm. the Atlantic Ocean, and you turn the corner and there is a room filled with, with sculpt, sculptures, mm-hmm. underwater uh, sculptures, um, faces at, and bodies of, of enslaved people who had drowned, who had been on slave ships. And you can hear the waves and you see the faces and the chains and the shackles. And, and then you perceive there are, are small theaters where you go in and can watch documentaries. There are, you know, there's audio. There are holograms. You go into rooms and you push a button and an image appears and you hear the voices of children and women and men describing um, the horrors that they were living through. And it, it just goes, I mean, it's, it's a day-long experience. And then there's an outdoor exhibit as well a couple of minutes away. Um, so tell me about the decision to go there um, together um, and, and why and what it was like. Um, well, <clears throat> Justin Terrell uh, is the one that brought it to the group. And uh, we all agreed that we would want to go down there and take our, our group down there to, to see it. Uh, I'll let Guy go ahead and jump in and talk about, you know, the planning of part of it. Yeah, he thought that it, he had experienced it himself, and he thought it would be a great experience not for only uh, us who are of our African American for ourselves to continue to educate ourselves about you know that history, right? And this incredible place that, even though as you were saying, describing is overwhelming, right? Emotional. I mean, you could feel it from, like you said, the sounds and then the sculpture. And that was one of the things that impacted me the most when I walked in from initially the sounds of the waves and learning about the transatlantic slave trade. And then walking and seeing some of the, the, the faces. And there were babies. And there were women. And there were men. And then it's like beginning to feel it. I mean, you really, truly could feel it like you were really there. Um, it, it took you on that, that, that journey. And uh, part of it was Justin believed that it would be a good experience for all of us, not only to learn individually for ourselves, but to do it together and then have some debriefing afterwards on what that was like for all of us. And we did. So after we toured the exhibits and we uh, took a look at the memorial and we went through the museum itself, we sat and had lunch and then we talked about what that was like for us. And we had to take a minute to process what we just saw. And the relevance is that, you know, the, the origins of modern day policing, it can be traced back to slave patrols, right? Uh, The earliest formal slave patrol created in the Carolinas in the early 1700s, the mission um, established a system of terror uh, to to squash slave uprisings um, and and to return runaway slaves to their owners. 
Yeah, and it's one of the things that stood out for me, too, um, again, talking about enslavement, and then you go through, you know, the Jim Crow era to see some of the signs, right? That's one of the things that really stood out. Like, this, things were actually up in places and parts of our country that said that, hey, this is where you can't and can't go. And so to see that, that made it, brought it to life for me. In addition to, I think, the whole experience and, like you said, the holograms, hearing the stories of some of the folks that were inside some of the, the cells that you saw. And then when it brought it all the way up to modern day um, in terms of mass incarceration, listening to the inmates that was actually sitting and talking to you on the phone like you really were there visiting them, you could see and feel like, that Parallels. spirit, absolutely, mm-hmm. 100%. So how are the, the white officers responding or acting in the moment so when one you of, were there? So one of the officers, also Will Gregory, works with me at the 4th Precinct. Uh, when we had our debrief, he said, he, you know, it was a self-guided tour, so you have to read everything. You have to take your time going through it, through it. And he would read and he would go through it, and he said he would stand back, and when a Older black person would read the same thing he read. He just was watch their reaction, mm-hmm. and a lot of times he was. I think he was looking more at African American females, older ones, and they would go, mm. mm-hmm. just that you know, mm-hmm. had a different reaction than what he had when he read it, right? And so he was just people watching and just seeing the reaction that black folks were having, and it was it was he could put it a lot better than I could put yeah. it, but he was really moved, you know, emotionally by that just to see. That that really affected that person, and it affected him too, but not yeah. in the same way yeah. that it did that elderly black female. What about you? You were there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I. You know, the, you, when you describe in the room, I, I can remember looking at the little chart where they had the real little red dots showing the slave trade. Slave, mm-hmm. trade. slave trade. And I'm sitting there, I'm looking, and I'm like, "Well, wait a minute. What is all this north northern stuff? Right? Mm-hmm. I thought the slave trade was through the Carolinas and stuff." And mm-hmm. I'm like. And then Boston's role with the slave ships going down and bringing the bodies back up north, and and I I never knew that I never knew that no, the no, you know the northern part of that coast was a part of uh, the slave trade. And then I get to the cells. I I you know I sat there and looked at the holograms, listened to them. When I got to that last one with the kids and the, and the little girl said, "Mommy, where are you?" Mm-hmm. I, just, I I was done. Mm-hmm. I I walked away and I had to go to another section. So my question, how does that then build trust, improve relations, make it easier to talk about race when you get back to Minneapolis? What did that accomplish? So I, I think what it accomplished, you know, the Jewish community does this, has been doing this for years, sending police officers from the state down to the Holocaust Museum. And once you go through that museum, you see what the role of law enforcement was in, in that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I grew up in North Minneapolis back in that day. It was, it was a huge Jewish community. My teachers at Bethune were Jewish uh, teachers. So I I knew about the Holocaust because that's what we studied there. But going to through that museum and seeing that and seeing what the role of law enforcement was, it was it it, it, it was it was an eye opener. And that's the same resp- thing we want to get with our officers going to the African-American Museum. You talked about slave patrols, right? A lot of. What policing does now is remnants of that, right? The training. Yeah. Well, the training, patrol, mm. is a word for patrol, right? Mm. Uh, people don't know that most slave slave patrols were taken from uh, middle income f- folks. They were all white folks, obviously men and women, and you know slave masters were really upset because every time they would catch a runaway enslaved person, they would bring them back beat up and all that. So he they went to a couple military uh, schools and asked, can they train these? Slave patrols to be more professional, 
right? So that's where you get the paramilitary organization, right? You got mm-hmm. your chief and all that, right? But a lot of things we we still do today, like, you know, if you walked in when you was an enslaved person, you had a letter from master to go into town. What's the first thing in the slave patrol? Let me see your letter, right? What do we do nowadays? Let me see Walk your driver's license. license. Yep, license. Let me see your license. license. Walk up to a, gr- a group of people. So there, So the, for me to say this is so our officers understand when the black folks saying, you know, you guys, you know, this is remnants of slave patrols. At least they understand w- some portion of what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that's why it's important to take them down and see what, you know, the African-American community has went through. Learn our history. Um, in our last uh, 30 seconds here, Guy, uh, what gives you hope as you continue with these conversations and spread the word about the work that's been going on for years to try to rebuild trust? What gives me hope is the... Um gentleman I'm sitting next to in terms of what we've been able to do together, uh, both personally and professionally. Um, also to the other members that are part of this project um, and how we initially came up with it because we didn't know what we were going to do. It came together organically. It now we have an idea. Right. Absolutely. 100%. And now we've seen almost a brotherhood in a sense in terms of at least having the courage to take a trip to the Legacy Museum to talk about what that meant for us, to learn about our history, to learn about the populations that we're all living within or working within and get an opportunity to create some dialogue. So I leave, leave it with, I believe there's still hope for, for change, for sure. I'm hung on the word courage you use. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your courage. Thank I appreciate you, you both. Uh, I want to thank our guests, uh, Charlie Adams, an inspector from Minneapolis uh, Police Department's 4th Precinct, a member of the Police and Black Men Project, as well as Guy Bowling, a uh, nationally recognized fatherhood leader and speaker, also a member of the Police and Black Men Project. Thank you. Another reminder, uh, it's going to be another contentious election year, and that is why NPR News is bringing you Talking Sense, a reporting project aimed at helping people have hard political conversations better. You can check out our new app we've created just to do that over at nprnews.org slash talking sense. Spend some time there today. This conversation was produced by Gretchen Brown. Be safe. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at nine. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.